You are listening to Hands at Work Audio. In this Hands at Work podcast, we join Greenfinch Church in the United Kingdom as they hear from George Snayman in November 2013. George is speaking about the ordinary doing the holy. When Jesus was asked by his disciples to pray, he turned the tables upside down. And for the first time in history, in thousands of years, he ripped loose of the most amazing revelation when he said, Our Father. Never before did anybody dare to call God Father. And here the Son of God came and he said, I'll teach you to pray. Our Daddy. Our Abba Father who art in heaven. Holy is your name. Father, this morning I ask that your Holy Spirit will be so sick in our midst that you will be like a wet blanket over us and that you will reveal the heart of the fathers and that you will shake us out of a slumber if you need to. And those of us that are weak in our knees, that we will be strengthened to stand up and those of us that can running around, that we will start taking off and fly like eagles. Because we've got a Father in heaven. In a broken world. Give us a strength and a wisdom and open our hearts to hear this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. I love it when you come to hands and... And especially in Zambia, it's such a special place, isn't it? And, and you come and stay in Kachele. You know, Kachele is, is a, it's a beautiful place. And there's this huge tree, a Kachele tree. It's a place of anointing. And, and you spend the time with us in Africa. You sit around the huge bonfires with us at night and you worship with us. But you also, in a day, you walk in the dusty streets in the heat of Africa. And you meet these children. You know the children by name. We love that. You don't just encourage those care workers and those children. You're a huge encouragement to the long-term workers, to people that gave up everything to be there. Some of them are your sons and daughters. People that gave up promising careers, not because it's a price for them, but because it's a privilege for them to be there. But it's tough for them. And when you guys come, when your teams come, we cannot describe to you, you can't measure it, the impact that you have, not only on the children, not only on the care workers, but on the long-term volunteers, on people that tonight they will be lying in their beds in Africa and they will be missing hearing the church bells. They'll miss you. They'll miss many things. But they made hard choices. Because in their chest was pumping the heart of their father. A soft voice spoke to him at the time and said, I want you to go. Friends, ye and green friends, you are part and parcel of that. You are supporting the people. How can we ever measure that? But I want to say to you this morning, Know this. What you do today is important because you are exchanging a day of your life to do that. 
I sat there in the back as we worshipped. And suddenly, just images of people that I know that died came to me. Friends, hundreds of people have died in my arms. And the tragedy of these young people is people that shouldn't have died. There's nothing that makes me more frustrated than angry when I watch people wasting their lives. Wasting it. Not understanding in the 21st century where we understand everything we think, where we are so developed and advanced and still we cannot see that today is gone forever. You'll never have it back. And the clock is ticking. You only have to look honestly in the mirror to know that. <laughs> the clock is ticking and things are falling. <laughs> <coughs> and, and we are expanding in certain places. <laughs> but serious. To the young people I want to say to you, as hard as it is for you to understand it, I was 21 yesterday. I can't tell you what happened from there to here. It's like that. I look at some people I'm friends with now, and I think, gee, you're so old. <laughs> and when they tell me how old they are, I think, that's how old I am. Life is, you know, you know what's the difference between life and death? It's your next breath. If you don't breathe in the next few minutes, you're gone. And you know how much control you've got over that? So what are you doing with your life? Tomorrow is going to be the last Monday, 11th of November, that you, in 2013, that you'll ever have. It's a day less of your life. What are you doing with it? And it burns in my heart. It burns so much that it keeps me awake. Not because of any reason, but because I know how amazing you are and how big impact you can have in this world. I know that there are people that today as we are sitting here, friends, it's hard to understand unless you go. There are people that cannot, they cannot think further than how they're gonna, what they're going to eat for lunch. They can't. I stayed in a hut in Zambia with a grandmother with four orphans. She's got a beautiful piece of land right next to a river. It's hers. But you know what? She can't plant. She cannot plant. Because every minute of every day, she's fighting for the next meal. She does not have the energy or the time to spend time to go and tilt the ground and to plant seeds. She cannot do it. Her four grandchildren will die of hunger. 
every minute. She's always constantly, constantly fighting for the next meal. I slept in their hut, listening to them. Every half an hour, somebody getting up, coughing, turning up, down. I mean, we sleep in in the dirt. No blankets. You look up, you see the stars. And I I see that. And and, And I see how God burst into my life and how he changed me and what he did for me. And I'm thinking, there's something missing here. There's something not right here. So when you come to Africa, yes, it's great when you play with the kids. Yes, it's awesome when you pick up the ball to feed them. It's amazing. Guys, it's huge. But there's something much bigger than that. You bring hope. And you take hope back to your own homes. Because you need it as much as they need it. I sit last night to church leaders I can now honestly say before God after 10 years of visiting your countries the US, Canada, here Australia that your young people are as vulnerable as our young people in Africa my heart is as broken for your children and your grandchildren I never understood Mother Teresa when she said, when she went to New York the first time, she wept so much, she had to cancel all her meetings. She said, I've never seen such poverty in my life. You know what's a tragedy about your poverty? You don't even know you're poor. You don't even know your children are dying. Because they're dying spiritually. At least in Africa we know we're dying. We're fighting a tooth and nail. You need Jesus. The biggest struggle we have in a church right now is that we live in a generation where we've been more, we've got more information, like I can touch an iPad, I've got more information on fingertips than any generation before, and we are the most ignorant generation of mankind when it comes to the character of our Father. We forgot. We don't know who our father is anymore. And because we don't know who he is, we are running around like street children. And we behave like street children. I know street children well. I watch them. You know, they, they, they will kill each other for a slice of bread. They would not consider anybody. They will sniff glue knowing it's going to kill them. But they do it because they're addicted to it. There's no rule, no law, except survival. They live like that because they've never had fathers. Guys, like, in a, in a way, that's how we are in a church right now. 
We don't know our father anymore. So some of us think he says, Father Christmas, I just want to hand out gifts to us once you said the ABC prayer. The rest of us think he's this completely irrelevant God who hates, who hates gays, marriages, and an abortion. And some of us walk around proudly and arrogantly that we know all the doctrines, but there's no life in us at all. We're arrogant. Who is his father? Because if we understand who this father is, it will compel us to cross the road. It will bring life to us. This morning, I want to, to suggest to you that when we go to places like Africa, which makes no sense, no economical sense, there's a hundred arguments against it. But I'll tell you, I know, I know for sure that when we do it, we'll find our Father. We'll find the Father's heart. Not because Africa can do it better, but because in the midst of all that pain, they found their Father's heart. And we'll bring it back and will bring life to us. Peter and Moji lives in Nigeria. It's our leaders in Nigeria. I met Peter and Moji with Levi, those of you that know Levi. I met Peter and Moji one morning in a mud church, a quarter the size of this church. And there stood Peter, impressive man, a few inches taller than me, and there he stood up straight looking me in the eye. And I said, Peter, what is going on here? People told me I had to come and see what you are doing. And Peter started sharing his story with me. Peter has got his master's in, in uh, forestry. His wife has got a master's in biochemicals. She, she got a full bursary to come to Oxford University to do a PhD. And as a Nigerian couple, they went for a weekend away and they saw a village in the mountains. And they were so touched by the poverty and the pain that that night they sat down and they, they reconsidered and they said, Lord, you have showed us and if you want us to change our plans, we say yes. Can you imagine? An African couple grew up in poverty, got the ticket to go to England, Oxford. You know that Peter and Moji lost all their family. They were cut off when they made the decision. They went into this deep rural place and they planted a church. Peter built the church of his hands, a mud church. For the first three years, they didn't even have a toilet. Him and his family, his wife and three children, slept on the hard sand. Peter will get up at half past three in the morning. He turned his church into a school because he believes that the children should have opportunities. He wanted to bring Christ to them. He turned the church into a school. When I went there that morning, I stood in that church in the middle. There were 250 children from grade one to grade seven. And Peter ran the whole school like this. 
He will get up at three in the morning and he will start writing. He will have seats like at that side, grade one, grade two, grade three, and he will start preparing the lessons. And then he will spend time with them. Some of those children now walk to their homes. They will walk for an hour and a half. That morning when I was there, some of those children had malaria. Friends, when malaria took me down, I was down as a man for two weeks. Some of those children, primary school, will still go to school because they found love for the first time in their lives. And these kids will walk out of the bushes and they will come to Peter's school and they will sit there and Peter will teach grade one for 20 minutes. Then he'll move on. And as he moves on, they will continue. I stood in the middle of that building and I said to Levi, can you see there are 250 children and they're dead quiet. We could talk to each other like this. Peter knew each one of them by name. After school, he will not go home. He will go with those children and he will visit them in their homes. Just this month, Peter sent me these photos. He met these two boys just outside the school. That's a photo he took of them. Peter's house if I say a house, it's a two-room place where he and his wife, four children, and three other children they adopted are living in there. He saw this. He took these children into his home. Friends, he doesn't live on a shoestring budget. Peter hasn't got a budget. But he could not walk past that. And he took them in and he just sent me a, a little SMS. Please pray for us. We really trust God that we can help them and he can, his love and care can come into their lives. Just before I came here, Peter sent me the next photo. And he said to me, it's going well with the boys. Because Jesus, Jesus, came into their lives through somebody that understood. They understood the character of their father. They understood that, yes, there are many opportunities in life. Things that our culture say, that's a safe option. That's a right decision. But friends, it will never take you to the place where you can experience that. Now, I spoke about time. Peter and his wife and his children poured the little that they had for the last five weeks into those boys. I would say Peter's last five weeks was well spent. Well spent, right? This morning as we stood here in worship, you know, actually the word worship is wrong. We praise God when we come here. Worship is deeds. Worship is your lifestyle. Worship is Monday morning when you find those kids. Or your neighbor who walks out and his wife and he leaves your wife and five children behind. That's worship. Worship is how you behave. It's how you work with your money. It's how generous life you live. Worship is how you spend your time, your talents, and your treasures. That's worship. 
And then we come together here on a Sunday and we take our hands, our hands that has been holy the whole week, touching, praying, loving. Then we take those hands and we go like this, unto you, and we release. That is praise. You take the worship that you did and you rip loose and you throw it into the heavens. So in a sense, we need to be careful lifting our hands and praise. Because what do you give when you stand and you go like that? Where were your hands? Where have your fingerprints been this week? Are you proud of where they are? Did they bring life? Did they bring hope? Did you spend your last week well? You're never going to have it back. Peter and his family spent their last week well, last five weeks. But you know, I stayed with Peter in their house. I woke up five o'clock in the morning and I heard all these noises. And there was Peter and his wife and five kids in their little lounge kitchen kind of thing. It's about the biggest stage here. And they were all on their knees praying and worshiping God. And I, I kind of joined them and I worshiped with them. The eldest boy was five. The oldest girl was 12. And after worship, Peter said, so what did we do this morning? And the one boy said, let's do memory verses. <laughs> and I go, <laughs> I'm sure I remember Psalm 23. <laughs> and Peter said, let's do memory verses. Friends, that morning as I sat there in their prayer time, the one said, let's do Psalms. And they started to Psalm 1. And then one of the children will say four or five verses. Psalm 2. They went up to Psalm 32. And then they stopped. They said, okay, let's sing a few hymns. <coughs> Friends, their life is well spent. Their lives are well spent. Their children are in good hands. They're going to be the salt of the earth. They're not going to be swallowed up by sex and drugs and alcohol. I spoke to a church leader that was in the streets on Saturday night in one of your cities. Some of you need to go into the cities on a Saturday night and see what's happening to your children. You are dying. You are dying out there. I spoke to a teacher who told me this week, I asked her about pornography and social media. I said, do you teach the parents how to protect the children? She said to me, we've called meeting after meeting. She said, if two parents come, it's a lot. Do you know that most of your children are big into porn? Do you know that? I know it because they tell me when I come into your places. Some of them, or many of them, are addicted to it. It's going to destroy their lives. It's going to destroy them. They can never be married and be into porn. It's never going to work. Why can't we do that? Because we don't know our father anymore. Our father, his heart. You see, when you and I know his heart, and things like this is happening in our households, our children will be well. Our children will not go out 
American University did research. Why teenagers are involved in alcohol, drugs, and sex? Very interesting. Completely circular research. You know what they said? They said the children who eat dinner with their parents five days a week are not involved in that stuff. Or very, very small percentage. It's the children that grow up in homes where the families don't eat together anymore. Your children don't have community anymore. So they'll go and find their own community. You see, you've got to understand that there was a community once, a perfect community, a beautiful community. It was called the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They were totally 100% content and happy. But they saw pain. They saw suffering. And they said, we've got to do something. We've got to do something. And they decided to break that community open. Illogical, bad, bad move. If you're happy, don't change. But they were forced to break that community open and take one member and cast him down and said, go, we cannot leave it. We can't leave it. We've got to do something. He left the heavens. He left the perfect community. Friends, he was born in a feeding trough. He was a refugee in Africa. The son of the living God became a fetus in a woman's womb, an unmarried woman. He went through birth. The son of God that held the stars in his hand and he cast them in the heavens and he counted them and named them. That same God became so dependent that he had to drink from his mummy, otherwise he would have died of hunger. He had to learn to tie his shoes. That's how far he went for you. So how far are you prepared to go? I want to tell you, I want to draw a parallel. I want to say to you, if you can't get this, it's because you never got the gospel. You don't have a clue about the gospel. If you don't understand that somebody was flung from the heavens to a feeding trough, somebody paid a price that you and I can never understand. On that cross, people think it's a crucifixion, it was painful. It's not like that. Many disciples died of worse death than Jesus. Peter was crucified upside down. John was boiled in oil. No, the son was cut off from his community. That's why when your sons and your daughters go to Africa, they are just like Jesus. They are just like Jesus. It's good for them. They love the gospel. When they come back, they will not come and sit here and and play games. They'll be the salt. They'll be radical. They'll be on fire. Because I understand it. So Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. It's a bigger word than peace. He's the Prince of Shalom. Shalom is this amazing picture that God has about all of us. All the threats coming together. The kingdom of God is interdependence, friends. Not individual rights. 
not individual rights, interdependence. But in some places, this picture is unraveling. In some places, because of AIDS, because of pain, of, of the broken world, war, famine, some of the streets are busy unraveling. The picture is busy breaking. Just like we were. And the threat came down to come and be woven between us to restore that picture. That's, that's exactly what we are called to do. When we see the picture unraveling, you and I must say, here I am, flung me in there, flung me in there. I want to restore that picture. That's what your sons and daughters, that's what you do when you do short-term missions. That's what you do when you support that work. That's what you do when you send your sons and daughters. You are restoring the picture. It is your father's picture. It's his pride. Is it possible? Is it, is it remotely possible for us that we can say, I, I understand the gospel. My side of the picture is beautiful and colorful. I need a few more threads to help me because I want to really be settled well. And we, we cannot lift our heads and see that there are holes in that picture falling apart. Those of you that get emails from the Congo, you know that this week, this very week, some of our children died in the Congo. But there was one girl who was desperately sick. Her parents have died and extended family took her to a witch doctor. Friends, Eric, who's our leader there, they heard about that. And they hunted for that girl for days and days. By the time they found her, her arm was already broken. She had burning wounds on her. She was virtually dying. Until beautiful feet burst into that place. And they say, no. And they took that child and they brought her out. They rescued her for sure from a certain death. And the whole community watched that. They see that injustice being exposed. You know why there's so much injustice happening in the world? Because those of us that can intervene and make a difference are kept away by the oppressors. They do not want us to get in there. They do not want those that can speak on behalf of them, those that can fight on behalf of them, like somebody fought on behalf of us. They don't want us to know. Because if we don't know, they can abuse and destroy the weakest and suck them empty. Isaiah 58 speaks so beautiful when it says, on behalf of the poor and needy. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, where Paul says, that's what grace is. Though he was rich, he became poor, so that you who are poor can become rich. So every time we refuse to be intimidated and we get involved in places and we are known, every time you guys go into the villages, and you walk there, and you know children by name, you know key workers by name, you must understand that you disarm the oppressors. Because you are now there, you can speak on behalf of them. So Eric this week, 
he could find that child. And he could pick the child up and he could carry the child away straight to the hospital and bring healing, not just to that child, but to the community. A statement was made. We will not tolerate this because we serve a God of justice. You want to know about your father. I always tell my children, you want to know about somebody? You ask somebody close to them to tell you. Well, I know somebody just like that. In fact, God himself said, he's a man after my own heart. (laughs) Can you imagine God say that about you? A man after my own heart. He wrote amazing, inspirational psalms to us. Like, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want anything. He wrote beautiful psalms where he say, rather one day in the courts of the Lord than a thousand days elsewhere. But in Psalm 68, David wrote and he stopped and in one sentence he summarized your father and he said this, he's the father of the fatherless. He's the husband of the widow. And I can see how he he stood up and he went like this and he will say, is God in his holy habitation? Yes, this mighty fiercey God. He's the father of the fatherless. And he's left you and me behind, fully confident, fully confident that we will reach out and bring hope at our own price. It must cost us. Friends, love must cost. Not breadcrumbs, sacrificial. It's a good investment. We must learn to give. As we give, and as you and Greenfinch are doing that, life comes back to you. We know what Jesus said in his own mission statement. Ah, it must have been something to hear that. I have come to preach the good news to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to comfort those who mourn. That's the one that you call my Lord. You know what Lord means? Lord means owner. You say my owner, his mission statement was, I've come to bring good news to those of no hope. That's my owner. Is that your mission? Is that your life statement? To bring hope? To bring life? We are prisoners of hope when we serve Christ. All of this just means that we are qualified to be on a team with Christ to bring justice. I want to read to you one scripture as we come to the end. It's from 1 Timothy 
1, verse 12 to 17 from the message. I'm so grateful to Christ Jesus for making me adequate to do his work. He went out on a limb, you know, entrusting me with his ministry. The only credentials I brought to it were invective, witch hunts, and arrogance. But I was treated mercifully because I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know who I was doing it against. But grace mixed with faith and love poured over me and into me, and all because of Jesus. Here's a word you can take to heart and depend on. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. I'm proof, public sinner number one, of someone who could never have made it apart from sheer mercy. And now he shows me off, evidence to his endless patience, to those who are right on the edge of trusting him forever. Honor and glory to our God. I spoke to a nuclear physicist in Chicago. <laughs> I remember this man two years ago. He wanted to come to hands. And he said, I'll come if I can come and build. And I said, you can't come and build. I want you to know the children. No, but I, I want to build. I said, no. Well, he came anyway. I met him three and a half weeks ago in Chicago. And this is what he told me. He was in a village in South Africa called Oshuk. And he was spending time with the children, the boys. And he went from home to home, and this boy was following him. And one stage they did something together. There was a pipe that they fixed or something. And it was towards the end of the day. And they were about to leave when this little boy came to this well-educated, successful man. And this little boy of 11, no parents, touched the guy and he tucked him and he said, Sir, I love today being with you. May I call you father? And there stood this man in Chicago in the midst of many people and the tears started pouring down his face. And he said to me, George, you know, I don't have a son. Oh, no, I haven't had a son. But now I've got a son. I'm going back to Africa because I've got a son. Time well spent. I don't know when his clock is going to stop ticking. <laughs> but it doesn't matter. He's got a son in Oshuk. He started the legacy. He did something of his life that was bigger than himself. He acted just like his older brother, Jesus. Green friends, green friends, you are doing a great job. You do it because you know your father's heart. You do it because you know how it feels to be rescued. You do it because you know it's good for you. 
If you pursue to do this, there's a beautiful promise for you. Isaiah 58, verse 11 and 12. I will always show you where to go. I will give you a full life, even in the emptiest places. Firm muscles, strong bones. You'll be like a well-watered garden, a gurgy spring that never runs dry. You'll use the old rubble of past lives to build new ones. Rebuild the foundations from out of your past. You'll be known as those who can fix anything. Restore old ruins. Rebuild and renovate. And you will make your community livable again. It's a day of salvation. Let us pray. Father, I thank you that you can call us your sons and your daughters. I thank you for the privilege that I could be in Greenfinch this morning. I pray for the young people. I pray for the more mature people. I pray for single people and married people. I pray that their lives will be bigger than themselves. I pray that they will see the size of your kingdom. They will see the size of your heart. I pray, Lord, that you will show them your kingdom. I thank you, Lord, that there was a giant at one stage who terrorized the whole nation. And you used the a little young shepherd who didn't even know how to put on and how to be dressed for for war. I thank you, Lord, that you used humble women and simple men to turn the world upside down of your church. I thank you, Jesus, that when you came, you chose to, to be born in an obscure place, that you chose the shepherds to hear the good news first. I thank you, Lord, that you use the ordinary to perform the holy. I thank you for the gift of time. I thank you for the gift of life. I pray that it will be well spent, Lord, all the days of our lives. And as we sang this morning, when the end draws near, that it will be well with our souls because we will regret nothing. I pray that we will live generous lives every day, way beyond what our culture or people expect of us. I pray that you will discover that you own all the cattle on a thousand hills and that you are waiting for us to rise up, to take our threats and to throw it into the holes of our community and our family to the uttermost parts of Africa. I thank you today, Lord, that we are part of something miraculous that you are doing 
in eight countries in 63 communities. There are international volunteers, there are African leaders, there are Mother Teresa's, who today have beautiful feet and who know children by name and who brings hope. Father, I thank you that we can be part of that. I thank you. Because I know it's on your mind every minute of every day. I pray, Lord, for the young generation in Great Britain. Father, have mercy. Have mercy, Lord. Have mercy. Raise up men and women that have got courage to show them, to show them that there's a real life out there. There's hope. May your kingdom come. May your will be done in our lives. We recommit everything to you this morning, Lord. I pray that we will not live instant lives where we just change relationships and wherever we feel like it. But we'll have a deep commitment to you and to one another that we will love life and live it in a way that's worthy of you. Help us to cross the road every day. Help us to lift our hands on a Sunday and to release the worship that we did in the week. This coming week, Lord, help us to spend our lives well. Holy Spirit, we need you. We need you more than ever. We need you. Fill us anew. Fill us afresh. Fill us. Bring life to us. In the name of our Savior, our Lord, our owner, our brother, the one who left his community so that today I can be in that community. Thank you that you invited us into your community, Father. Even knowing that you were inviting trouble. When you invited me into your community, you invited trouble. But you still did it. You made space for me in your community. You made space for me in your life. You spent your only son so that I can be there. Help those truths to cut so deep into my spirit that it will change everything I think and do. In Jesus' name. Shalom. Amen. Thank you for joining us. www.handsatwork.org